Heavenly Father, as we open up the word, we ask that you would be with us and that, God, we, everybody here is coming from different places, coming from different kinds of weeks and different kinds of whatever. But God, you're an awesome God. You can speak to each one of us individually. I pray as the message goes forward, your spirit would be speaking individually to our hearts and that we would be open to receive that in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting a new series today called American Christian. And we're going to talk about some of the things that America and American culture particularly contributes to our experience of Christianity, some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses. And so today we're going to talk about Americans and their money. Uh, I found a funny story where there was a girl who was in small claims court for the ninth time she had failed to pay one of her creditors. And so the judge just kind of looked at her and said, lady, can't you live within your income? And with, with a straight face, the lady looks right back at the judge and says, your honor, I can barely live within my credit, much less my income. How many of you feel like that sometimes? You know, you can barely live within your credit card limits. A husband and wife, they were in marriage counseling once, and she said, you know, I know that he just married me because my father left me a bunch of money. And the guy, without breaking a stride, looks at her and goes, I would have married you no matter who gave you the money. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> That's all. I hope I get quick wit like that someday. <laughs> Americans and their money. I'm going to throw up a few statistics and things to try to lay some groundwork so that we can understand exactly how money has affected us as an American culture. The debt rate of the average American citizen, that is the personal spending of money we do not have, is rising 20 times faster than our economy can keep up. We are, in other words, we are spending 20 times faster than, we, than our economy can provide the earnings to pay for what we're buying. The average American citizen has a 136% debt rate. Now, for many of you who are in the financial sector, you may say, actually, that's not too bad. When you add in each individual American citizen's responsibility of the public debt, that is the debt our government has gotten us in, we all, on average, carry 266% debt load of, of just living in life. 266% in debt. Stay here. Cybernetic devices don't always work. Within the next 30 years, millennials, those are American citizens born between 1981 and 1997. If you were born between 1981 and 1997, raise your hand. 1981 and 1990. So get your hands down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 1981 and 1997. Raise them proudly. You guys are going to be the wealthiest generation, the wealthiest that the world has ever seen. You stand to earn or inherit $30 trillion in the next 30 years. However, among millennials, those born between 1981 and 1997, those who stand to inherit or earn that $30 million, one in two claim that they do not have enough money to meet their daily needs. Three out of four 
live, still live, paycheck to paycheck. Now remember, somebody born in 1981 is 35. Yeah. So, you know, we're not talking about, you know, teenagers with a diploma here. This is, you know, some people who've lived a little longer. Uh, three out of four live paycheck to paycheck. Only one out of four give back to any charity. That's the lowest in American history that only 25% of the population donate or give back to any uh, sort of charity. And the church is obviously one of those types of charities. Four out of five say that money is their greatest pursuit with less than half thinking that they will ever be able to retire. Now, the same poll that was taken in 2014 was taken in 1984. And in that day and age, the number one pursuit of of men and women was to have a close, intimate relationship with another person. 30 years before that, in 1954, the same poll was taken, and the answer for the highest was a life that has meaning and fulfillment. So we went from 1954 to a life that has meaning and fulfillment to 1984, a life that has a close, intimate relationship with another person to 2014, uh, the pursuit of financial wealth being the greatest goal. And so for today, for many people, it's all about the money. And a quote from a famous line from the movie Jerry Maguire, show me the money, right? Come on, show me the money. (laughs) I don't care who I play for. I don't care what jersey I got to wear. I don't care what position I play. Just show me the You guys are singing a little less enthused than the (laughs) Show me the There we go. Come on, let's say it. For Americans, part of our cultural identity is that we have the luxury and the responsibility of dealing with a very complex financial economic system, far more complex than the rest of the world. And so we are acutely aware of the role that money plays and the lack thereof or the abundance of. It is something that is unique in our cultural conscience. Well, where did this begin? It kind of began in the beginning. Uh, Most of you may not realize, but the story of George Washington becoming the first president and the famous general that he was didn't begin with the Revolutionary War. It began 11 years earlier. In 1765, after the French and Indian War had concluded, George Washington found himself deep in debt. He was in debt to many creditors in Bristol and in London, England. He was also beginning to rack up debt in the American colonies. In order to pay for his debts, he went and had a meeting with the British governor of Virginia, and he said, I would like to settle, either buy or homestead, lands in Kentucky. There's only one problem. One of the parts of the treaty that ended the French and Indian War was that the American colonists would not go west of the Appalachian Mountains, that they would not go into Kentucky. So the British governor looked at Washington and said, no, you can't, you're not allowed. And if you do anything over there, 
we're going to throw you in jail. He insulted Washington. Washington got very upset, and he immediately joined the revolutionary cause, somewhat out of patriotism perhaps, but largely spurred by this debt that he had to pay and could not pay it and didn't want some British governor telling him what to do. In the American War, what most people don't realize is Great Britain had invested about $6 billion into the American colonial infrastructure. This is a mother country that built roads, houses, schools, uh, gave loans, financed the flourishing of this colony. So when the colonies rebelled, they didn't necessarily just see it as a political rebellion. They were fighting to try to preserve their investment. Imagine America was to go and invest in a country, and then all of a sudden that country rebels and then takes all that we had invested. We would fight pretty hard for it too. The problem was the British lost, and in the treaty in 1783, they said, okay, we lost, you're your own country, but will you pay back what you owe us? You know, will you pay back what we can document, we gave you, we, we paid into this, and, and, and all that stuff, and, and we said we would, and we never did. In 1795, the British, I think probably wanting to settle the matter, wrote the U.S. government a letter and said, okay, you know, we're, we're just going to... We're just going to forget about all this. Let's have a new trade, you know, trade agreement and try to make it up in that way. And so I'm not trying to put a bad light on the American Revolution, but we have to look that at the very beginning of our nation, money was a huge thing. Money was a huge motivator. In 1835, the the country of France sent an author to the United States to write a book about the United States of America. His name was Alex de Tocqueville. And in his summary sentence, he wrote this. The love of wealth is at the bottom of all that Americans do. A few decades later, Adam Smith, one of the greatest authors on economics in recent times, wrote, outside of America, outside of America, money is communal. It's rooted in family, village, and tribes. Inside America, or in America, one learns very quickly. Money is an individual pursuit and has nothing to do with family, village, or tribes. In World War II, as the Americans were beginning to populate large sections of occupied Europe, they were advised by many of their public officials do not come between an American or his or her money. For money is inherent to American identity. When meeting someone, know that they will probably give their work resume before speaking of their values or charitable accomplishments. Hitler himself said, move the gold south into Bavaria for the Americans will follow the gold before they try to get me. And those of you who know World War II, is that exactly what happened? That's exactly what happened. And so I say this to say that money is, and what it does to us and in our culture, has been there from the very beginning. We were born in it, and if you spend any amount of time outside of the United States, you will realize they do not look at money in the same way that we do, largely because the opportunities to make it really aren't there. 
when you don't have the opportunities to pursue it like we pursue it, there are other values and other things that begin to rise simply because the option is not there. Whether for good or for bad, from the very beginning, the option to trust in wealth over trusting in God has been something unique to the American experience. A, uh, neuro, a, a neuro uh, a study of the brain, uh, someone who studies the mind, uh, someone who studies neuroeconomics, Lynn Paramore, she did a study on how money affects us, how money affects uh, American people, and how it particularly biologically affects the neurotransmitters in the brain. And she came up with seven conclusions based on about three or four years of research. And this is what she had to say. Number one, money can restrict parts of the brain that produce empathy. Money can restrict, biologically restrict parts of the brain that produce empathy or sympathy. People often say, oh, if I only had $10 million, I'd give some to charity. But the fact of the matter is, those households that earn $10 million or more have the lowest percentage of charitable giving. Do you know who has the highest? American families who earn $10,000 or less. I should say American people who earn $10,000 or less. They give 5.4% of their income away. Those who are, earn $10 million or more give slightly less than 2%. Of there and everybody, everybody else is in between. That's the average giving. So the thought that if I have more, I'll give more, you know, not only does statistics not prove it, but what it does to the mind, those empathetic centers that are in the mind, money can kind of throw water on that fire. Second thing is losing money hurts literally. Uh, the brain directs hormones to be released uh, that has the same, it's the same hormones that are released when we fall off a ladder. So how many of you have ever fallen off a ladder? A lot more than the last service. The last service, it was only me and Mark San Diego. And everybody's like, that explains a lot, you know? So, I mean, I've, you know, when you fall off a ladder, it is a very unique experience. You get a real chill that goes through your body, you know? And when you finally land, the experience isn't over. You know, all of your body is just drenched with all of this hormone and all this stuff, all this adrenaline or whatever, and you're in shock for a little while. She concluded that the exact same process that happens when you fall off a ladder is what happens to us when we lose a lot of money or, or we, all at once. You know, you have a good job and you lose it and you go home that day and you can feel like you fell off a ladder. Number three, money can lead to bad manners. Money can lead to bad manners. It restricts parts of the brains that produce social goodwill. She, she said that in the study, it came up that people who drive expensive cars are four times more likely to cut people off in traffic than those who drive cheap cars. So the next time you see that Beamer, that Jaguar, you know, say, it's in your brain, it's in your brain. <laughs> Number four, the more money you make, the more you think about money. It's left in residual memory. Residual memory are those things that are left in your subconscious that aren't necessarily filed away into long-term memory. They call it residual memory. It's a little bit, uh, lasts a little longer than short-term memory. 
And we have, there's all sorts of things that we have in our residual memory, right? And she thought going into this study that the things that are sensual would be what stay in our residual memory, food and sex. And what she found through the study is that money can, and the thoughts of money and the worry for money and trying to get more money can stay in our residual memory longer than the sensual side of life, food and sex, and it's absolutely astounding. It was 43% of our residual memory is often occupied by thoughts of money, and food and sex were lower. I don't remember what the percentage was, and, and, and so anyway. Number five, men have neurologically replaced wrestling with money. Men used to love to wrestle. We used to look at the alpha male as the best wrestler in the tribe. Now who do we look at the alpha male? Uh, Bill Gates. I mean, even I could take him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Mark, the, the little twerpy guy that made Facebook, you know, what's his name? Uh, Mark uh, Zuckerberg. Nice guy, by the way. I heard him give a speech the other day. But anyway, I mean, we look at those guys. They're billionaires, right? They're the new alphas because we have psychologically and neurologically replaced uh, uh, wrestling with money, with, with financial conquerors. Not, uh, and she actually did a little study on that. Well, anyway, I won't go on that. Number six. This was, I, obviously, I got really into this article. <laughs> Number six. The brain treats credit different than cash. If you want to spend less money, spend cash every time you spend money. You'll spend less. It's physically leaving your hand. You know, I had this once in my life. <laughs> I remember this. I was at a Walmart or something, and she, she, uh, she gave me the total, and I, I went in, and, and I had the money, and I, I went like this, and I pulled it back. <laughs> She's like, you know... I'm like, I can't, you know, I can't give it to you. <laughs> She's like, sir, this is what I know, it's what it costs, I can't, you know, it's my last 20, you know. <laughs> I mean, I just seized, you know, I was just like, I just, you know, I had to literally, my other hand had to take it out of that hand and give it to her, you know. It was just because the brain treats credit different than cash. We spend 12 to 18% more with our credit cards than we do with cash or debit cards. And so, you know, there's something to that. And then number seven, and this is what really led me to the message today. Eventually, the wealthy experience money on a spiritual plane. They experience money spiritually. In other words, the same way that spirituality can affect a person, like when you read your Bible or pray or sing a worship song, the same effect on the brain that spirituality can have after a while, money can have that too with the wealthy. That it literally becomes experienced spiritually. And what she said was, and I quoted this, money truly can become a God we worship neurologically. I mean, that was the whole, the point, the whole point of her study. This was not a Christian study. Was, this was a secular study, but I thought it was amazing that she came to that conclusion, that at some point we can switch over and money becomes the God we worship. And I thought, 
what a topic to address in a culture and where our identity is so often wrapped around our finances and our dollars and our savings and our 401ks and our annual incomes. Jesus said it clearly in Matthew chapter 6, 24, and he said this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money because it's an issue of trust and provision. When we make money our master, really we're making ourselves a master, our, our, our ability to make money master. And Jesus says, that's one master. But then when you have God as your master, that's another master built less on our ability and ourselves and our own self-sufficiency and more on God's willingness to provide. I think what Jesus is saying here is probably one of the greatest examples of God's heart for us you'll see throughout all the Bible because God's warning us. In the world of money, Money can often leave us with a sense of slavery and a sense of fear. If you've ever been in debt, you feel slave to that debt. I have school debt. I'm paying off. I wish I could just go and take a year off in Thailand and just be a missionary in Thailand for a year. But that could not happen at the moment. I'd just you know, destroy my credit rating and the government would come after me because it's a federal student loan. Not that I have any problem with federal student loans, but, you know, they, they get nasty when you don't pay. So to some degree, I, I have, a, you know, call it a financial obligation or what. I am under that. I mean, I, you know, I got to pay it. They don't care if I like it. They don't care if I got the money for it. They don't care. Not, at every 17th of the month, that, that's coming out, whether it's there or not, you know. There, there can be a sense that sometimes we can be a slave to money. And I know for a lot of people, I've seen it in their eyes. You start talking about money, fear starts coming out. For some that have good jobs, you know what the fear is? I have a lot of expenses. I've built quite a home or I've, 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 I've put myself out there. Now I got to make this income in order to pay for the life I have. For other people, people who, who either don't have a high income or don't have jobs, you see another kind of fear. Hey, I may be making it now. What's going to happen in 10 years? What's going to happen if I get hurt? What's going to happen if I can't work? Am I going to be sleeping on the side of Hagman? Which that would not be the street to pick, by the way. I mean, that's like, might as well be I-5. You know, people drive 80 miles an hour on that road. But anyway, so the point is, you know, worshiping money can often lead to a fear and slavery of not having enough of it. Whereas worshiping God often feels to a feeling of, liberation. Somebody once put it this way, money, in a sense, doesn't really care about us. Money doesn't love you back. You perform for it, and if you don't perform for it, you don't get it. But God, God who is above money, God loves us. God does care about us, and we do not have to perform for God. He loves us even when we're acting like little turd balls. God still loves us. At my last church, 
I, I, I was a youth pastor and I had a, a decent budget and I made, I made a financial mistake. I <laughs> can't believe I'm telling you this, you know, because I'm the pastor of this church. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're going to trust me. You're going to really trust me with the offering after this one. But I, 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 made, I made a financial mistake and it was a doozy. I mean, I, I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, you know, and, and I had a meeting with the senior pastor and and I remember thinking to myself, he's going to fire me. You know, I walk into the office where we're going to meet and I'm already thinking where I'm going to get boxes to clean out my desk, where me and my wife are going to go live because they're going to kick me out of my house. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not even prepared to listen to what he has to say. I have already fired myself in my mind and just assumed that time was catching up with me and that's what he was going to say. So I walk in and, and you know, and I said, yeah, I... I made a stupid move, and I lost some money, and something cost way more than I thought I was gonna, and I, I didn't budget right, and it was just, you know, and it, it just, I'm sorry, it's just gone. There's nothing I can do about it. And uh, he looked at me, and he said, Tom? <laughs> and he gets up, and he starts dancing. <laughs> he said, he said, Tom? He said, was it Tanya? Oh my gosh. That's because she knows the story. She doesn't want me to tell it. <laughs> it's my wife. She did silence your phone. <laughs> um, he said, he said, Tom, he said, you've made mistakes with money before and you will make them again. He said, God realizes we are not perfect. And sometimes we make mistakes with money. Sometimes we make mistakes with people. Sometimes we make mistakes with our words. Sometimes we make mistakes with our dollars. It happens. You made a mistake. Can you recover from it? Because you're bound to make one again. But God has grace on us. But if you can't receive that for yourself, you got no business going any further. I think, honestly, my natural reaction is I live more under the slavery and fear when it comes to money. I live more under the, man, if I make one mistake, that's it. My family's out on the street. My, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, 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 can, I can go there real quick. But God has brought people in my life along the way that have reminded me you don't have to live under the slavery and fear of money. You can live under the grace and peace of God. And so he looked at me and said, he said, you've made mistakes before and God saw you through them. And you'll make mistakes again and God will see you through those. But I need to know, can you trust God with the money? Because if you can't, <laughs> this is not gonna be a fun job for you to have. And I, you know, I knew the right answer, so that's what I said. But I'll be honest, it took a little while for my heart to catch up to that answer because it was such an incredible thought. I'd never, I'd never had anybody in authority give me grace for a financial mistake. Certainly no bank or creditor ever did. And now for the first time, I, I had a boss who was saying, 
you either got to operate financially in God's grace or this just ain't going to work. And he was saying it about more than just my ministry. He was saying it over my life. And I caught it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 to 33, Jesus says, Do not worry. Saying, What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? Or what should I wear? For the pagans, the people who aren't following God, they run after all these things. They run after them. That's the verb there, too. They're running. They're running, like in fear. I gotta get it, gotta get it, gotta get it, you know. They're running at, he says, get out of that rat race. He says, your heavenly father knows that you need them. What a radical thought. God knows you need money. God knows you need money. God knows some of you need a lot of money. God knows some of you don't need as much money. You'd like to think that God thinks of you as the one that needs a lot of money, wouldn't you, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to be the one that says, God says, oh, you don't need that much. No, no, wait, wait, can we renegotiate that, you know? But God knows you need money. Jesus is saying that your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. And he knows that in our modern economy, we buy clothes with money. We don't barter. I don't make a ladder for you, and then you come and bring me clothes. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's not the way it works anymore, you know? <laughs> that's funny, though, because I did try that once at one of those fruit stands on the side, you know? I tried to trade once for fruit. They wouldn't do it, but I thought, <laughs> you know, I had something more valuable. But anyway, um, so the fact is, God knows that we need this. But in Matthew 6, he says, Seek first his kingdom. Seek God first. And all these things will be added unto you. He, a few churches ago when I was pastoring in the ghetto, uh, we had an open office. And, and, it, and it was open to the sidewalk. And somebody came in and said, I need prayer. I lost my job. Well, he had lost his job quite a while ago just by his appearance and by everything, you know, it was, wasn't a recent thing. So I said, okay, you know, let's pray. I, I said, well, let's pray about that. He's like, really? I said, yeah, let's pray about that. So I, we, I said, let's get on our knees and pray. And so I want to go around my desk. We get on our knees, and I, I, yeah, I go to grab his hands. He was kind of looking at me like, eh, can I trust this guy, you know? And I just grabbed his hands, you know. And I said, all right, you pray. So is this your prayer? You pray. And he's just like, God, I need a lot of money. God, I need a whole lot of money, you know? God, I need a lot, a lot of money. I found, I said, okay, wait, 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 you know, you know. And I looked at him and I said, God knows your need. He knows it. He knows. We don't have to pray what God already knows. God knows you need money. Let's pray for God to show you his path to leading you to your need. And then stay on that path and don't deviate from it, no matter what the enemy does. And I can see the look in his eyes like, oh, a whole new concept. But that's the reality. God knows our need. It's 
hearing his voice to be on the path to having that need met and not being distracted or derailed by all those other things. And so I come to my, my conclusion. How do I keep money from replacing God? The first thing is remember God is our source. God is our source. It's easy to forget this air we're breathing right now, God. Some of you are smart teachers. But that brain that you think with, mouth that you communicate with, God. Some of you can build things. Those arms that we hammer with or the measurements we take, God. What do we have that does not originate with him? We sometimes want to put God and money as equal. Well, I can either trust in the Lord or I can trust in my finances. <laughs> They're not equal. God is so far above finances, he can create something out of nothing. You know, When the U.S. government creates currency out of paper, you know that's bad, right? That's devaluing the overall currency. It's taking our, our you know, value of our dollar and decreasing, you know, printing more bills. God can make gold out of nothing. He can say gold, and it's there, and all of a sudden there's money. Now, he doesn't do that. You know, for some of you, I don't want you to go home and pray for that, but, you know, <laughs> but the fact is God is above money, and he is our source. Every time I either pray for the offering or I put in my tithe check for the church, I, I just say that in my head, God, you are my source. I give this because you are the well in which I get everything, everything, every single thing, because all that I work with has come from God. Amen? Second thing is, God will use money tests to grow and remind us to trust in him. Remember the rich young ruler came and said, Jesus, I want to go to heaven. Show me, show me how to get there. He said, that's great, man. Sell everything you got and follow me. God's like, well, wait a minute. No, let's not get carried away here, Jesus, you know. No, I mean it. Sell everything you got and come and follow me. Well, no, no, Jesus, I won't follow you. I won't give up my money for you. That was the point. There will be tests along the way in which, you know, some, some of you that are like, man, I've been in a season that's been financially pinched. That might be from God. Don't worry. A seasons of blessings come. But seasons of pinchings come too. That's just kind of how God continues to work with us and grow with us. Number three, remember it's God's heart to bless us with money. Does anybody remember the first thing that Jesus ever did with the apostle Peter? The very first thing. Hadn't even met the guy yet, right? And, and Peter, it, what, what was his first sentence to Peter? Anybody remember? Cast your net on what? On the other side. Here is this preacher on the beach shouting to the commercial fisherman, hey, put your net on the other side. Peter's like, who is this guy? He's shouting from the beach. Does he even know the trade? What's going on? Put your net on the other side. All right, fine. Just to give him a shut him up, I'll do it. And so what does Peter do? They put the net on the other side, and what happens? Fish. Lots of fish. So many fish that they had to call in another boat to help them with the haul. And you know what that fish got Peter? 
a lot of money. We forget about that. But see, God knows our needs. He is our source. He'll test us. But there's also blessing that comes. Jesus' first act was with Peter was to bless him greatly. And then finally, remember, we are blessed to be a blessing to others. Blessed to be a blessing. I'll close with a story. The, so I, when I came to Christ, I came to Christ in a non-denominational church that was pastored by a Baptist pastor. And I loved him uh, up to the, you know, I, lo- I still love him. He has passed away, so I guess I have to say I loved him. But the fact of the matter is he was my first disciple, a great guy, uh, and, and I, I really enjoyed being under his teaching and, and had a lot of, I have a lot of, I love the Baptists, you know. They don't like me so much, but I love the Baptists, you know. And so when something's Baptist, I, I immediately like it at first, you know. And, but but I, when I came back to the United States, you know, and I was in a Baptist church, you know, one of the guys was like, you know, I don't know if this is going to be the place for you. And so I was like, okay, you know. And, and he had suggested the Pentecostal church down the street. I didn't know it was Pentecostal, but he said, go to this church down the street. So I went, and they had this meeting for young men to talk about life. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's what I need right now. So I go into the meeting, and it's me, and it's like, you know, maybe five or six other guys. And the pastor says, all right, so tell me, guys, where do you see yourselves in like 20 years? You know, what do you, what do you want to do? What do you want to see in your life? And, you know, the guy next to me, he said, I want to be a faith healer. I thought to myself, that's great. I don't even know what a faith healer is. But does that not sound cool? You know, I want to be someone who heals and they have faith. I'm like, that's awesome. I, in fact, I think my first question was, how much does that pay? You know, that sounds like a good job. I mean, you know, I want to be a faith healer. And so I, I, I'm just kind of, you know, as men do, I'm nodding and smiling. I'm like, yeah, good answer, you know. And then the guy across from him says, I want, I want to be a missionary to Nepal. I'm like, you know, I, I'm, I'm just getting floored here. You know, the guy's like, oh, I, want to, I know I'm called to the ministry. I, I want to be a pastor in the, urban, in the urban area, in downtown Seattle. You know, I want to be a... And so he finally gets to me, and I look at him square in the eye, and I say, I want to be rich. Now, after all these extremely spiritual and holy answers, you know. He looked at me like I was the son of the devil, you know what I mean? It was like, it was like, you know, you flesh-ridden, gross thing. Who are you doing in my group, you know? I mean, it was just like, you know, and, and, and of course, he was a little bit of an effeminate man, you know, he, he crossed his legs and did this with his hands, you know, and, and it, oh, 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 brother Tom. I love Pentecostals because they call you brother Tom or sister, you know, Oh, Brother Tom, you know, and, and how and why in the world would rich be, your, you know, would the pursuit of money be? Your, I can't remember how he said it, you know. But I, just looked, I, I was quiet for a second. I looked around. I said, look, I'm too short to get a date, too weak to play in the NFL, too stupid to build my own house. If I don't got money, how else am I going to make it in the world, you know? And what's funny is all the other guys kind of thought for a moment, and they're like, yeah. Now, <laughs> Now, now, at first, I thought they were agreeing with me what I was saying about myself, you know. 
But they began to think that about themselves. And they began to talk about some of their own, you know, oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be a missionary. Maybe I, you know, I could, and, and the pastor, I could see he was like, the devil sent this man to my group, you know. <laughs> I could see he was losing control, you know. I was about to stand up and start taking job applications. And, uh, and he, he, you know, he kind of gets control of the group again. And he, and he pulls me in. And he said something I, I thought, it was pretty powerful. I, I remembered it. He said, he, said, he, he said, Brother Tom. He always had a calming effect. Brother Tom. He said, what if, what if God wants to be the one to give you all those things? What if God wants to be the one to give you a wife? What if God wants to be the one to give you a house? What if God wants to be the one to give you a job? And I'm thinking to myself, God's more like stuck with me than he wants me. You know, I mean, I said the prayer. I'm trusting in Christ, you know. So, I mean, God's like got to let me in, you know. I don't think he wants to bless me. I think he just has to put up with me, you know. That was kind of my, that was kind of my opinion, you know. It was the first time Someone looked me in the eyes and said, you know what? What if God wants to be the one to give you all those things? What if it is in God's heart? What if it gives God great joy and great pleasure to give you a job, a home, a wife, a family, to give you extra financial blessings so that someday you can give to others, feel the joy of that? What if God wants to do that for you? What if he wants to? What if by you not letting him do that, in some weird way you're hurting God's feelings because he wants to give you these things? It's a concept that comes very hard to me. Because I don't like getting anything for anybody. Everything I got, I earned, I get. I, that's the way I think. And when he said that, I, I couldn't grasp it. I resisted it. Because I didn't know how to take stuff like that. He kept saying it over and over. What if God wants to be the one to provide for your needs? You can go down that other road and you'll probably make a lot of money. People do when that's their goal. And you'll have that fear and slavery that goes with it. There will probably be a trail of broken people you leave on the side of the road to get it. But you can if that's what you want. But what if you surrender, give all that up and come into the Father's heart because he wants to give you these things. And I went home that night realizing I don't just worship a God. I love a loving Father. Amen? Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'd like to give just a very simple invitation. And that is to come out from the fear and the slavery, which is so often associated with our finances, and to come into the grace and the freedom of surrendering our money to God, surrendering our provision 
to allowing God to do what he wants to do. God wants to provide for our needs. And when we suffer loss, God wants to provide in those losses. And so, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, my invitation for you this morning is to come to the good, good Father. He's far better than we think he is. He loves us far more than we think he does. His heart for us is far deeper than we could ever imagine. And his character is beyond goodness and loveness. His character is 100 million infinity percent for us every moment of our lives. We are the object of supreme love. This morning, will you do what the angels and demons and everybody else will one day do? Will you bow your knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father? This morning, if you'd like to surrender your identity, your finances, but more importantly, even who you are, your life, just surrender that and say, you know what? I want Jesus to be my Lord. And I want to be filled with the Spirit of God. Just go ahead and look up at me right now. Amen. 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 Why don't we pray together? Say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my money, my identity, my life to you, and I make you my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.